Welcome to the Stark and Main podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Green. The theme of this episode is identity. Our guests this week are my neighbor Andrew Maudlin and Pastor Michelle Jones. All right, welcome to Stark and Main podcast. I'm here with my neighbor, Andrew. Hey, glad to be here. Yeah. Just having gotten done playing the Splash Brothers and the Oregonian right. publishing Trash Brothers. Trash Brothers, right. I mean, I know you have to like sell their articles and get somebody to look at it and stuff, but the Oregonian... No, the Oregonian do that. should 100% be, there should be none of that. It's there also should just be none of that. It's also abjectly a lie. Like, the Blazers were not trash in that series. They lo- they were swept, but they didn't play terribly. And they they were in the Western Conference Finals against the greatest team of all time. They were up 3-1. Yes. A good deal of the time. Yeah. Right. And I know we didn't, like I said on Reddit, it's kind of like talking about how much money you won besides how much money you actually left the casino with. Right. right. Yes. But... Good, good enough. Hey, we were up thirty-one. <laughs> right and there was a there was a time there was a super big like proud feeling where I'm like, <laughs> dubs whatever like we're up on them right now. Like we got fifteen on them, so that's cool. You know what? Too that that was such a flashback to the 2000, 2001 season with the game seven against the Lakers. I mean, of course, this was game four and three and two. But that same kind of at we don't have to time, see it that often, so it still that totally counts. Right, you're, right. I mean, one, it was the last time we were in the Western Conference Finals. But the same kind of, of breakdown of like halftime, we're up, we're like looking awesome, dominant, like we can we can beat these guys. House is rocking. Yeah, Kobe and Shaq, they have nothing against Scotty and Detlef and Damon and Arvidas. But then that's not how it ended. It changed. It did not. It did not end that way. Would you say that's your lowest moment as a Blazer fan? Um, it could have been close. I went to Game Six of that series. Okay. Here. Oh, right. When we had a chance to close it out, and that didn't work. Hmm. Hmm. You were there. Six. Man. Oh, 2000, 2001. What What was that game like? Um, it was, well, it was interesting because that was the worst seats I've ever had. And I haven't gone to a ton of games, but that was not standing room, but like 317, second to the last row. You Corner, like you can kind of see the game. You're there, but you're also there with like almost a, well, you're there with a different kind of fan than you're there. Yeah. yeah. At even at, it's just a, a good type of fan. It's a good type I of like fan. I like being a yeah. yeah. But it's a different type of fan. I mean, there was there was a woman, probably 55, 60 years old, that screamed at the court all night long, like they could hear him. Like just screamed Wait. at the court. Wailing. And but like it's funny for about the first half, and then it's still happening, and you're like, I mean Rip City, I get you. You're you're in it, right, but the passion. They they still can't hear you, and we're still like we're this is we're looking pretty good. Yeah, this is this is fun. You don't have to. I mean, it hasn't all gone right. We're still watching a, a cool sporting event. But that was yeah, that was fun. That was uh, that was a uh, that was one. I got those tickets by going to a GI Joe's and putting in on a paper lottery for who got to have the ability to buy tickets. And I think even then there were like 102 bucks oh, or yeah. something like it probably wasn't that much, but it was, was a steep. lot. It was like, it was, it was, a uh, it was more expensive than I thought it was going to be. Took my little sister. That was a, that was a good team too. Just so much. A lot. That of was depth. a good team. And they brought it back for me. Depth. Like I was getting back into basketball then. And I, um, had kind of lapsed on paying attention to the Blazers. Uh, huh. Because that's not long after, like, that's graduating high school. My dad passed away, like, right about then. Oh. Stopped really paying attention to that. It was actually, I think, 
Chris Webber has a bunch about bringing me back into basketball at that time because I really got into the Kings. And so, well, but why this break? What, like, was it part of the grief? I wasn't process? at home. Like, I wasn't at home. I didn't have a place to watch basketball, mm-hmm. and I didn't care to make a place to do it because, like, I really only watched basketball up until that point with my dad. Yeah, and so he was a big part. Yeah. Like, in the in the Buck and Jerome Terry Porter like. That's me and my dad sitting in the living room watching that together. Yeah. It's a, and it's, those moments are, they don't work one without the other. Right. Especially at that age, you know, seven or nine or whatever, I'm not going to watch a basketball game by myself. Right. Right. I'm nine. I'm going to probably go right. You're going to play. Or, yeah. Or I'm going to play or whatever I'm going to do. It, yeah. It's being in that social in with everybody and feeling the emotions that, for, for me, it is. Maybe I'm trying. It's a, that's a that's a very big thing. Like trying to, you know, trying to get Spencer to come over here and watch the games with us. Or um, there was the weekend where I think it was in the second series that I had to. I was like, we have to find a place in public right. to watch this yeah, game to see because Spencer, you have got to see what happens like when you're in public, right? And there's probably it might only be 60% of the people in the place it's sometimes only like 12% of the people in a place but just roar at every moment like that and they're all there together and suddenly you're making eye contact with other people yeah. in the place yeah. high-fiving yes. or even if you're not close enough to high-five nodding each other yes. or like making comments oh yeah 35 oh feet away from one another that's a, that's a big that's a big time that's big time vibe it's one of the very best things about sports is there's not many things. There's not many things like that. Like you're not going to watch the, the bachelor finale is not going to be on in like, maybe it is. I don't know. They put together big parties for, the for sure. For sure. I've never yes. gone to one. Well, so uh, yes. But sure. on the scale I, of the sports bar in America, I mean, I mean the scale slides. I don't know. I don't know for sure. What was your first memory of Rip City? First Rip City thing is, well, it's probably, it's about the time that um, Nike and shoe culture is making its way into my world and the slogan thing, just do it, or Bo knows, yeah. or those kind of things yeah. are in my head. And yeah. Rip City was our just do it or something that like, that was, it was like a slogan it felt like at that point, um, and it never made any sense to me, like what it meant or, and I don't think I even thought about what Rip City was for 20 years after I first heard the term. I was like, yeah. Rip City, it's like, I don't know, Shondi says it, and then we just, and he doesn't say it often, and it's not a huge part of the thing, but they, you know, it's on posters at Dairy Queen and... Well, that's what someone my my buddy was visiting, and he's seen me posting about this stuff online, because you know posting Blazer stuff and talking about Rip City, and he's like, "What is Rip City?" And I was like, "What?" But then I was like, "I actually don't know where Rip City started." Did you? Do you, you the I mean, the story that I know that I've seen is like Sean Lee said it in like seventy. Four or like what was like the first early days? Yeah, 70, that's what I've heard like too. Way back in the early, early days before before I was born, he just used it as a like something big happened. Yeah, and he just yeah, Rip City, and it just kind of stuck. And I think even in those stories I've read, he says I have no idea that just came out, which what? is the best way it could possibly happen. Yes. The same way that I think just do it and Bo knows became a thing because somebody sitting in a room trying to write something funny or trying to write something important did all these things and then it's the in-between moments where you're just like, I don't know, just do it. <laughs> Bing, and that one hits. So is it, did that did that lead you to okay. Sorry, we are skipping all over the place here, but you you ended up going into advertising. You work in advertising. Was was part of it those early brand like those seared like iconic? For sure. Yes. 
I mean, how could they not? How many living yeah. living in what was small town Oregon at that point in a small town state when Portland did not matter to anyone? Right, like Portland, the what I called the big city was not really even hardly on the map for the rest of the country at that point. Yes. However, Nike Sportswear was from there. He grew up in Oregon. Came yes. through Eugene. Mm-hmm. Made a town in Portland outskirts. And I always wanted to, like, I just, I was, they had me. Like, that, that marketing worked at my 11, 12-year-old self bought that whole hog. Yeah. Yeah. And I may, and I don't think I really knew that I wanted to do what I ended up doing at that point, but I drew shoes and, oh yeah, you know, sketched, I drew the flight logo a million times Mm -hmm. and, Mm. you know, I, like, I loved what Nike was. Yeah. My parents brought me up from Bend to Portland once we took a trip just to go see Nike Town. Yeah, it was a destination, and it was it, yeah. But that I'm with you. That it was, was it was dope. Yeah. I was like I was completely out of my mind the whole the whole weekend. We went both days, just walked through this big museum. I saw things I'd never, and it was forming. They had all the commercials it was forming that I wanted to be a part of making that media for what I, what I wanted to do when I grew up. But I, strangely enough, just kind of fell into that. Yeah. I never really thought, I never thought of that as a reality. Like it never occurred to me, like you could learn how to be a designer for Nike. Well, but what you're describing is also like that culture was pretty ubiquitous for, for boys of our age, like the basketball culture. And the drawing of shoes and mm-hmm. logos, like yep. you're in class and you're sketching stuff. Like I was always doing the pinwheel and yep. the little S, whatever that S thing is. Oh, that could be an episode in itself right there. Do you know? Do you have the, the story? S thing? Yeah. It has no, no one can really trace it back to anything. Wow. Hmm. What is it? Exactly. What is that's it? That's what I'm saying. That's we got to like, that's a, its own episode right All there. right. Do you remember first falling in love with the Blazers? When, do you remember what that was like? Well, it was the only, for one thing, it was the only team that we had yeah. out here in small town Oregon. Right. right. We have, there's the Seattle Seahawks and my, uh, there was football people in my family then and I never really caught football that much, but the Portland Trailblazers were our team. Yeah. And I think the first Portland Trailblazer thing. This is a good one. The first Portland Trailblazer thing in my life was I'm seven years old, second grade, Juniper Elementary in Bend, Oregon. Jeff Petrie comes to the school. Yeah. For some reason. I don't remember why. I didn't know who he was. I, you know, I'm a second grader. I have no idea, but there's like some Portland Trailblazer hero is coming to the school. And they that school was small enough. That was probably like two hundred and twenty five kids. Mm-hmm. Like this mm-hmm. little Bend, Oregon. Oh yeah. And he in the gym signed autographs. And we have, <laughs> I have this this great one. And I we went to the office and photocopied it, <laughs> so we could give it to our friends that weren't there because there was only like. 50 of us in that moment, like, getting autographs from from him at the end of school. Yeah. And I still didn't know who he was, but he was very tall and seemed yes. very cool. Yes. Yeah. But that was, like, all I had. So that was, that could have been, that could have been my first Rip City. And I, you know, I'd had no idea who he was, but that was a big moment. To know that it was that close. Because I didn't, like, living in Bend also, I never got to go to a game until I could drive myself to one of my teens. Right. Like, my parents were not going to yeah, they were gonna figure out how to have enough money for three, to take yeah. a family of four. Yeah, you'd have to stay here. We weren't, uh, like, our, my parents weren't orthodontists or anything. We didn't have money. <laughs> so, um, no shade for children of orthodontists no, or orthodontists themselves. But like, I just never, never got to go to a thing like that. 
the the amount of time I have exerted in sports, the amount of time I've spent playing it in some form, thinking about it, talking about it, cataloging it, cataloging it, like esportsing it. It's yeah, like I would I would not say you know I don't worship this game, but in terms of time and energy, I I think I do. I, at least not just basketball. Basketball is the is. I still think I would say baseball has taken more time and brain power out of my life than basketball. Okay, I'm yes. But they live they live together in a in a beautiful little cottage, and they respect one another. <laughs> so it's all good. Yeah, like they they're fine. Sometimes, sometimes basketball is bringing home the bacon. Everybody's fine with that. Andrew, thank you for being on the podcast. And Thank you for having about. me. I bet we never uh, have another episode like this again. <laughs> Why not? Why wouldn't we? Well, there'll never be one like this exactly again, but uh, <laughs> the joke was, I think we'll probably do this again. Uh, Michelle, Michelle Jones, welcome to the Stark and Main podcast. Thank you for being here with me. I'm so glad I'm here. You're, this is cool. You're only my second uh, guest here in the studio, and I appreciate you ha- having the patience to wait till we, we could record in here. I, I wasn't your first. Ah, uh, no, sorry. Have you, yeah. Fine, fine, whatever, fine, <laughs> fine. It's cool. Whatever. Will you will you tell me uh, once your once your feelings are healed? Uh, will you, <laughs> on that <laughs> might take a minute, but <laughs> will you tell me? How did you, what brought you to Portland in the first place? Imago Day, a job. That's, and, that's it. Oh, you mean in the first place, the very first time I ever came? Or you mean yeah, how did, to well, live here? Yeah, what brought you to, to be here right now? To be here right now, to live here was work, was a job at uh, Imago Day. So there was no, there was no plan to come live here. There was, it rains all the time. You were in L.A. at the time? No, I was in L.A., and then I met I met Eric Knox while I was in L.A., mm-hmm. and then I moved to Atlanta, but just before I moved, he introduced me to the women's pastor at a church called The Well, mm-hmm. and I came back and forth from Atlanta every October to do their women's retreat. The Well was, he- wait, The Well here mm-hmm. in, in Portland? The Well okay. Church, it's, where is it, 7th and Broadway? Okay. Somewhere over in there. Oh, so you were out here. You were connected with the community to some extent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And were you, were you, did you have aspirations to move out here no. or what were you doing at the time in Georgia? Not one. I was writing and speaking. That's it. I was okay. writing speeches and this successful businessman just put me on retainer and said, if it needs to be written, I just need you to write it. Oh, awesome. And I said, okay. That's a good gig. <laughs> it was a really good gig. Did, how did you get started writing? Purely by accident. I was out of college, and I started working at a radio production company, uh-huh. literally as an intern. I was making almost nothing to file tapes and just clean up around the office, things like that. And then one day, the guy who was writing the show came to me and said, I want you to write something. And I said, I'm not a writer. And he said, but I'm your boss, so I want you to write something. And I said, okay. So I write something for him. He gives it back to me, marked up in red. I'm like, I graduated from school, not to have to deal with this anymore. Right. But I was, I was just like, oh, fine, whatever. So I <laughs> I straighten it back up and give it back to him. Gives it back to me with fewer and fewer red marks on it. Then finally, he came to me one day and he said, you are a writer. Wow. And I said, I'm not. He said, no, you're a writer. He said, you can't teach people who cannot write how to write. Hmm. But you can teach people who are bad writers how to be better writers. And he (laughs) said, you're not a great writer. He said, but you are a writer. And each week he gave me a segment to write. And so I wrote. Now, th- was this on In Living Color? Is no, this was way before In Living Color. Okay, okay. This was way before that. And what kind of segments were you writing? What was a typical... It was an entertainment show, entertainment okay. radio show. So it would be like Entertainment Tonight, 
on the radio. Okay. So it was... Were you doing like news pieces or sketches or... News pieces. Okay. Mostly okay. news pieces. But all entertainment. Every, you know, once in a while they'd fly me somewhere to interview somebody. Oh, that's fun. And I'd do that and come back, write the segment. And then one day the guy who did the voiceovers for the show did the same thing. He came up to me and said, I want you to go in the studio and read this copy for me. Wow. And I said, I don't do that. And he said, just go in there and do it. So I went in, I read, and for some reason, I, it, it felt right. I just, just read the whole piece. And I understood to look, you know, look over the paper instead of at the paper mm-hmm. so that my voice was in the mic and all of this stuff. And Later on, he just said, I, I was so angry at you. He said, I, I trained my whole life to do this. And you just walked in there with a piece of paper and you just did it. And I just, I'm sorry. Were you reading your own piece? No. He okay. just, he just okay. gave me something to read in one of the segments for the show. And then after that, I would write one segment for the show every week and read one segment of the show every week. Oh, okay. And pretty soon I started just reading my own pieces. And that was, that was easy. So that's good practice. I that was one of the first pieces of advice I got was read out loud because stuff that you'll write, you know, won't necessarily make sense until you read it out loud and you're like, that's not that's right. not how I would say that. And I tend to write the way I speak. You do kind of naturally, mm-hmm. like you have that well, that's yeah. that's crucial. So where did it where did it lead from there? Like let's see. I left there went to another production company that pretty much did the same thing, only their stuff was more pre-recorded historical things. And then I left I left there and I was kind of at loose ends. Mm. So I started coming up with my own short form radio programs like for you know a, a radio show at Christmas time, so that I could get a sponsor, do the show, make a little money. And I had no idea that that was just not how it was done. You know? <laughs> but I needed to eat. So right. something besides a box of macaroni and cheese. So <laughs> I had to do something. So did you take, you, you made a whole radio play and then did you take it to stations? I did. I would call up stations and I would tell them what I had and, and, Ask them if they needed programming for the holidays, and how did that work? Did they respond? Did they yeah. respond to that? Oh, they okay. Would, I would send them a commercial, and you know, kind of a promo for it, mm-hmm. and they'd say, "Yeah, we want that." And so I, <laughs> then I would go to sponsors and say, "I have this, I have this many stations that are going to do this, and would you sponsor that?" And was this all? Was this in Los Angeles then? I lived in L.A. Okay. Yeah. Did you grow up there? No, I grew okay. up in Northern California. Oh, okay. Like yeah. Bay Area? Sacramento. Oh, okay. That's My right. dad was stationed at Mather Air Force Base. Oh, all right. Oh, Air Force Air yep. Force kid. Air Force kid. What did he do in the Air Force? He's an engineer. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Math head. Um then what I I I just I want to know what brought you to in Living Color, because I know that you <laughs> wrote there for a while and I just think that's interesting. That's such an like everything else in my life. I am like a walking piece of origami. It's like God folds it into this thing and says, look, it's a turtle. And then I unfold it and go, but there's nothing here that makes any sense for a turtle. And then he folds it again and says, look, a pterodactyl. And I go, no, no, this doesn't make sense. So everything in my life has been like that, Okay, including working for In Living Color. I was, let's see, I left the radio production company. Tried to work on my own a little bit for a while, and then, and then I got a job answering phones at the Hollywood Reporter. Miserable, miserable job, because everybody there who was writing wanted to be writing something else, mm. so they were cranky mm-hmm. every day, mm. and it was kind of a big pin. So the phone would ring, I'd answer the phone, and send the phone over and I am not a phone answering kind of gal. Yeah. So I dropped a lot of calls. <laughs> I got cussed out a lot. I got screamed and yelled at a lot. And then um and then 
but it, it kind of gave me an interesting bug. I moved in with a girlfriend because I couldn't afford to pay my rent by myself. So I got a roommate and she wanted to be a television writer. So she would give me her scripts, her ideas, and she'd say, look, I want to be a television writer, and so you have to have a spec script, et cetera, et cetera. And so she'd show me her stuff and ask me what I thought. And I actually thought she wanted to know what I thought. So I would say, well, you know, it doesn't seem balanced to me. You might need to do this. And And I'm actually editing her stuff. So she got mad at me, and that relationship didn't last real long. So (laughs) about uh, one day I just said, I can do this. So I just decided to write a movie. Hmm. And shortly after that, it seemed like it was probably competition. So she said, I don't think this roommate thing's going to work out. So I, I moved in with another girlfriend of mine who was a stunt woman. So I was still in the old entertainment thing, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. now there's no competition. So now we're living in the same place. And I swear this is going somewhere. So her name is Joy. Joy happened to be at the mall one day. And she runs into this guy she knew from junior high school. This guy, junior high school in North Carolina. Hmm. So now we live in Burbank. Yeah. So she randomly runs into this guy, invites him and a buddy of his over for dinner. And we come to find out they want to be writers. They've moved out to do that. Yeah, they've moved out there. They want to do that. They're a team. And... They said they'd been to some reception the week before, met this guy who's an agent, and he says he's looking specifically for African-American writers. Hmm. We don't have anything to show him. Do you have anything? Well, I had two movies that I'd written. They're horrible, by the way. They're really, really bad. But I'd written them. so They're done. Yeah, they're completed. Yeah, they're done. I had nothing else to do, so I just wrote movies. And they give me the guy's business card. So I call him. He says... What do you have? I said, I got a couple movies. He said, give me your favorite one. Okay. I said, all right. So I give him the movie. And two weeks later, he calls me. He says, I want to be your agent. Who does that? Wow. Who gets an agent like that? Mm. And I promise they're horrible movies. They're really bad. And so, so one day I'm watching In Living Color on TV and... I and I and I think to myself, I wonder if I could work on that show. Mm. Yeah. So the next day I call my agent and I said, if I had some sketches, could you send them to that show? And he said, uh, yeah, that's what I do. I'm your agent. That's what I do. And I said, all right. He goes, well, how many do you have? I said, I have, I have three. He said, can you bring them over today? And I said, well, uh, no, because I actually had none. <laughs> and so I said, but I can bring them over tomorrow. So I stayed up that night and I just- Did you have con? Yeah. Did you have concepts for them? No, not until that evening. And I just cranked out three <laughs> sketches <laughs> and, and took them over to his office. Now, I didn't even have a car then. So I'm in L.A. with no car. So I get on the bus, go all the way down to my agent's office, drop the sketches off, and then, um, and then go back to work, get the miserable Hollywood reporter. Mm-hmm. And he called me and said, you have a meeting with Tamara Rawit, who was the producer at In Living Color. And I was like, oh, okay. And thank goodness the Hollywood reporter was down the street from Sunset Gower Studios, which is where... They were. So I took the bus at lunchtime, went to my meeting with Tamara, went back to the office. Day later, agent calls and says, you got a meeting with Keenan Ivory Wayans. Took the bus, <laughs> met Keenan, went back to the office, and he said, uh, you got a job. Wow. You know, day later, he said, you have a job. They, they want to make you an offer. And I said, uh, okay. <laughs> Did you put in your two weeks notice then, or do you just well, go right over? This is what's funny. They didn't want me to put in two weeks notice. They oh. wanted me to start on that following Monday, and it was, I want to say it was Wednesday. Okay. Oh. And I said, well, idiot that I am, I said, well, I need to give them my two weeks notice. And <laughs> and he said, uh, I, they, they said, we'll give, we'll give you a week. So they said, well, we will see you in a week. So I went to my boss and said, uh, yeah, I have to I have to quit. And she said, why? And I said, I, I got a job at, on In Living Color. She goes, doing what? I said, I'm a writer. <laughs> she said, are you kidding me? So no one in the office thought anything of me except I was the idiot girl who dropped their phone calls oh, all the man. time. Oh. And so... She said, don't tell anybody. 
this was my supervisor. She said, don't tell anybody. And then on my last day, she said, hey, everybody, Michelle's going to be leaving us. This is her last day. And everybody's going, who cares? Nobody cares. F you. Get out of here. Nobody. Oh. And it was just a bunch of choruses of who cares? Why are you bothering us with this information? <laughs> she says, she's going to go and become a writer on In Living Color. And then you could hear a pin drop in the room. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then one person just yelled out the F word really, really loud. She was so upset. Oh my gosh. And and it was just like, and I was thinking to myself, it's probably a good idea that I don't work here anymore. And, (laughs) but like on a dime, people were so nice after that because now they don't know whether or not I could hook them up with somebody or get them a job. It was nobody until that moment. Yeah. So that in that it's moment, a, you're experiencing all of their envy. And then right after that is the... Hey, Michelle. So congratulations. And um, so, wow, how'd that happen? And it's just like... I, this seems like the most <laughs> the most Hollywood reporter story possible. It's ridiculous. If I wrote a movie about my life and tried to sell it, Somebody would say this is contrived. Too, yeah, too and, over the top. Yeah, and I'd just be like, it's true. I cannot, I couldn't even put my own story out there. Oh, well, okay. I think that this is an, an interesting transition to, to my first question, uh, which is that, okay, Catherine Dunn the, is the author of Geek Love from Portland. Okay. Uh, and and she, in um, in this book, she talks about every Portlander has kind of three primary identities. So what do you see as kind of your primary, like, if you know, obviously we're layered human beings and we have more more of those, but what are your kind of three primary that you would point out? Gosh. Let's see. Let me think about this for a second because I don't know that I've ever thought of myself as having more than one identity. But if I'm going to be a Portlander, I, I know, need more than one. Well, <laughs> that's part of the question, too. Like, maybe you disagree with the premise of it. So give me give me an example. I, I would I would say my three, okay. if I'm just listing mine, would be uh, that I'm a dad. That's kind of the, the primary thing that drives my life. I've got I'm, – I'm taking care of my daughter. Uh, I write. And then I'm, I'm a believer. I follow Jesus. So those are the – and I realize that all those are – tied into one. The, the following Jesus is kind of supersedes all of them. Um, but those are the three things that I feel like identify my day most clearly. I I would have to say probably, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, I was kind of going through this who am I thing and writing all of these things down. And then it's, at a certain point, I realized that all of my I am's had to get filtered through I am his. Hmm. And so I would say that's my primary identity is that I am the person who belongs to Jesus or the person who belongs to God and everything else gets filtered through that. So I would say then given that as my primary identity, I would say hanging on there, I'm I'm a pastor and a teacher, you know, that whole vocation thing. And I wouldn't call myself a writer as much as I would call myself, I'm a pastor and a teacher. Even when I'm writing, I'm trying to pastor and or teach Mm -hmm. and a creative. I'm a pastor and a teacher and a creative. Yeah. Do you do part of that teaching? Like you do a lot of poetry and creative Mm -hmm. writing too, but do you also consider that teaching in its own way? Mm Mm-hmm. I do. I do. I don't, when I write, I love making sure that the words are beautifully put together and all of that. But if it doesn't communicate truth, if I cannot identify truth, then it's not done. Hmm. And it's, it's interesting because there are some things that I will identify truth, but it won't be pretty and it won't be creative. That's the thing that matters to me most. Is getting getting to that. Is getting truth. to the yeah. So do you do you when you are writing a piece do you or or writing a sermon do you feel are you 
starting with a grain of truth that you want to get to, or are you starting with a story and then kind of reaching a truth at the end? Yes. <laughs> both. <laughs> both. Okay. Both and. It happens in different ways. For when I'm doing a sermon, the sermon has to do what I call land. It has to land. So it's not enough to understand the passage. It's not enough to be able to explain the passage to another person. It's not enough even to come up with an ordered sermon. It has to land where I feel comfortable that what it is I'm saying is what God would have me say to these people at this time. Hmm. And if I don't feel that, I don't have confidence in it. And how often does that happen? What, what happens if you don't have confidence in the piece? I still do it. <laughs> you still go through it. I still go through it. And I, and I say to myself, I trust you to say what you need to say, mm. and I'm just missing it. <laughs> I just I just missed it. It's not quite clicking for it's me. It's not quite either. clicking for me, but I'm going to trust you. And I would say nine times out of ten, while I'm in it, he'll drop things in the moment. Mm. And and it gets and it gets done. Like a la like a last he's improvising. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yep. And I just go, Well, all right, you're doing it this way. Okay, okay. And it's it's like it's like you don't realize sometimes that I'm not you, right? That I'm not comfortable with this whole, you know, at the last minute thing. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And he's he's going, Yeah, I kinda knew what I was gonna say before you were born. So I kinda got this. So you just gotta gotta let it, you just gotta have to let him have it. Just go, all right. But then then here's the thing. I can't take credit for any of that. Mm, mm -hmm. Somebody comes up and says, oh, my God, God really spoke to me, and he did this, and, and you did this. And I'm just like looking at him like, yeah, no, I didn't. <laughs> that strikes me as the kind of common denominator of almost all artistic work yes. is that – I. It, it's funny to me when uh, – I, you've. I think you've actually – told this to me that the the temptation of the artist is to is to take the glory onto themselves to be like mm -hmm. I, yes I did it it yeah. was the, but even even uh I don't know many artists worth their salt who aren't aware that there's something ethereal happening if you're honest about it honest I mean if you're really honest about it you know you're not that smart you yes. you know you're not that talented. Seriously. You know you didn't put those words together and come up with that fantastic image. And you look at that and go, I, I can't. I, I mean, honestly, half the time as writers, we wake up and there's just a floor full of words. Mm -hmm. And then something in us says, pick this word up. No, wrong word. Put that back down. Pick this one up. And then you start to arrange them and you look at them. But someplace in us, we know that we are we have the skill to put the words in an order that would impress the average bear. Mm -hmm. Oh, great, great way to put it. You know, but we also know that there's a place that it can go where if we if we meet it and it meets us, then it's amazing. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's been waiting for us to get there. And we get there, and then we have this, this thing that we do together. And it's almost like, like I've had this plan, and the work has had this plan, and we just meet. Some, yeah, somewhere in between. In the middle, and we're just kind of hanging out. I, when one of those moments happens, when, when, you, when it clicks, it's such a satisfying. Yeah. I, I, that's when I feel most complete with and, and in the stream, you know. It sometimes it paralyzes me. Because I'll just go, this is amazing. This is so good. And you want to read it over and over and over again. And it's like, yeah, that's the first paragraph. You know, you have an entire book to finish, right? But this is so good. Yeah, so it's like you you, you really do want to, I, I don't know how Da Vinci did it. I would sit there and oh, look at my yeah. stuff all day, all day long. Look what I did. It's like, helicopter, check me out, you know, and... Mona Lisa, oh, come on, seriously. I, I really like that you're that you're saying this because I, <laughs> when I'm really happy with a piece, I'll read them over quite a few times. Like yeah. you know, and you're like, ah, how did that happen? Yeah, you could, and you and you, you kind of know, but then you don't know. 
Mm-hmm. How, yeah, can you explain that a little more? You know how it happened in the sense that you were there for it. And you you got to put in the work and yeah, sit down and, you, and do and it. And you yeah. put in the work and you sit down and you and you do the stuff. But then something I know something in me often feels like it it like it shouldn't have happened. Hmm. You know, cuz I yeah. know who I am. Oh yeah. You know, I know I know I'm a mess. I know I'm a slacker sometimes. I know I know who I'm not. And I don't think it's I don't know that it's possible to try and engage with truth on any level and that's what you do when you're a creative and not know that you're as Katherine Hepburn said in Philadelphia Story, an unholy mess of a girl. Mm. And I know that about myself. And so even as I sit here and I think about it, it's not even a, I don't deserve this. It's, that's not me. Mm. Yes. You know, yeah. that right there, there's, there's some things that come that feel pure and they feel wondrous. And they feel joyful. And you know, I didn't wake up with that. You know, it's, it's like I'm not Beyonce. I did not wake up like this, you know? No, and it's such a fleeting feeling in the world overall, you, yeah. you know, because then you're back in the world, the, the yeah. darkness of it too. Yeah. If you're smart, then you know how much you don't know. And you know, and you feel really little. Mm. In the face of it, hmm. you know, and then you feel like you've gotten this permission to have something really, really good. It seems, I mean, what you're talking about is also, if you're feeling that satisfaction, you're oriented, you're oriented to the greater, the greater peace, right? You're in, mm-hmm. uh, how how do we how do we identify how do we orient our identities to to god to that really to that much broader perspective and and also sorry do we do we lose our individualness in in doing that in kind of offering ourselves up to a, a much larger picture i think we find it i think we find mm-hmm. ourselves at least that's how it's happened for me when i was when i was 7 i remember saying there's poetry in that Bible. Now, what seven-year-old says that? Mm. There's poetry in there. So even just the the belief that there was poetry in those pages, that w- didn't come from that seven-year-old. And so what I did was I tried to make the Bible verses rhyme. So I started in Revelation because that's where the dragons are, and that's the cool place. Yeah, it is cool. So I, started, I try to make I try to make all this stuff like rhyme. And my sister read it and said, "You're just rearranging the Bible verses." And she goes, "You know, you're plagiarizing the Bible, and you're going to go to hell for that." That's yeah, heresy. Freaked me out. <laughs> it it freaked me out so badly. This, this is not a lie. It freaked me out so badly that something in me never wanted to write again. Mm, and oh. I didn't think of myself as a writer back then. I just thought, hey, I was just trying to find some poetry in there because I was big into Dr. Seuss. And, you know, so it's just, you know, stuff rhyming. I was into it. And so <laughs> I avoided every creative writing class I could avoid. I would only write if I had to. Have to have 10-page paper. I avoided avoided it until the night before it was due. I'd finish it, be done with it. I you know, passed out of freshman comp in college only because I didn't want to take it another semester. Now, when you think about this this block that I had about writing, it made sense when Leonard came to me and said, you're a writer. I said, no, I'm not. Mm-hmm. Because something in me was saying, no, don't ever, I don't want to go to hell. That seven-year-old yeah. kid in me going, I'm afraid of writing. Mm. And then to go all the way around and the and I didn't write another poem by the way until until I was out of work when I was in television and it had been like it had been maybe months 
And these words were just floating around in my head. So I just put them on a page and this poem came out. And it was the first poem I'd written since I was seven years old. Hmm. And I just started, I don't write poetry as a discipline. I only write them when they come to me. So I would write these poems. And now here I am. Last year I was at, I was at the Jesuit Center and I was kind of going through this, this day-long spiritual retreat. And hearing the Holy Spirit say, I sent a poet. When I sent Christ, I sent a poet. And here I am like full circle, hmm. you know, from age seven. There's poetry in here. There's poetry in here. And then I would hear somebody like Tim Mackey talk about all the poetry in scripture. And and I would read these, these stories and look at these images and stuff and realize he didn't send a theologian or a historian or a politician or an engineer or a mathematician. He sent a poet. Jesus came to earth, and when he was a child, he spent all of his time on theology and in the temple with the Pharisees and stuff. But when he became a man, he put away the childishness of let's argue about what these words mean. And he started talking about wheat and tares and sheep and mm. doors and all kinds of stuff and sparrows and he's a poet and I look at that and and then you go back to let there be light and you see this light shining in the darkness and you think every dark time I've ever had in my life my hope was in him and mm. he's a poet he is a poet and so I find myself when I give myself up I find out I call it the sigh that he sighed when he first dreamed me. Mm. That's the oh, goal. Wow. When he said, Jordan Green, mm, mm, gonna make me one of those, yeah. That's the goal is to become that sigh. You know, mm. and it's not I, you know, people talk about being born again. You're born and then you're born into the family of faith. And I'm like, no, you're born three times because you're born into this world. You're born into the family of faith. But before all of that happened, you were born in God's imagination. And he's like, that's the goal. Mm -hmm. There's not this churchy Christian weird picture that I want to make of you. I just, the sigh that he sighed when he first dreamed me, that's the goal. you know. And I think we find that when we when we let ourselves be his. Hmm. How do we, how do we do that? How do we, how do we uh, slip into that stream? It's a good way to put it. Slip into that stream. It's, it's, I think that's what it is. It's, it's moment by moment. You make that decision to get into that stream, hmm. you know, instead of trying to find, you know, God love him, amazing man, Rick Warren, purpose-driven life. Sorry, it's not about me finding my purpose. Hmm. His purpose has been in this stream, and it's relinquishing each piece of myself into that flow. Hmm. Every time I see myself going against that, make a decision. And I, I don't think it happens all at once, and I don't think it's always pretty. Right. And I do think it's sometimes painful, but when we brave up and, okay, here, here's another piece. Okay, here, here's another piece. I'm thinking about as, I think yesterday I was driving and and uh, getting very quickly irritated at people on the road, which I do all the time. And and I, I've been trying to, to keep offering those pieces. So I was like, no, 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 that's not wh what I want to be. I don't want to be this grumpy guy, you know, <laughs> bugged by everybody driving around me. Why are you bugged by him, though? That's the question you got to ask yourself. What is it? It's not, I mean, okay, so they suck as drivers and they're in your way or they're driving too slow or whatever it is they're doing. It's not what they're doing. It's what you think is the truth about what it is they're doing. So if you're trying to get someplace 
and this dude's driving really slow in front of you, you're frustrated. It's not because he's driving slow. It's because you're late. Right. You know, yeah, <laughs> and it's because right. you want to get where you want to go or because you want to be in control. But figure out why, why am I mad at him? I, I, I do think about this a fair amount because, uh-huh. um, yeah, I mean, part of it is I want I want to get, I want it, I want my path to be smooth and it's. When, so that what? Uh, I, I don't know. I think, I think so I can kind of maintain my, like my happy peace, you know, where I'm not, where, uh, I actually, it, there's a part of it that feels like I, I want. When, let's say I'm moving in traffic and I'm just getting to where I need to go and the songs are good and the, I'm hitting the lights, there, there's a feeling in that where it feels like oh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in the right flow. Like I, like I'm, 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 uh, not that I'm, not that I'm better or anything, but that right now time is working. I'm, I'm in time. And there's a, there's a sense if I'm stuck in traffic and getting and hitting the train at the wrong time or, uh, can't get over on the freeway that I'm, that I, that I maybe not, that I'm not, that I'm not fully in, in the time in, in the stream. Yeah. So you're thinking something's wrong if you're less than comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's embarrassing. Yes. <laughs> That's, I mean, but, but you know, it, and if that were the truth, <laughs> Jesus on a cross, ow, 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 like every five Guys, seconds, this... ow, ow, oh, ow, something's very wrong here, ow. <laughs> This is really interrupting my flow, guys. This is guys. really messing with my flow. You guys are really you with the you with the crown of thorns. Really? Couldn't be velvet? Seriously. You see what a mess I am right now. You couldn't hook a brother up? Oh, fine. Whatever. Okay. All right. Yes, thank you. So yes, that is the state of my being currently. Is it's like, but then you think I am entitled to my comfort. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when I don't get my comfort, I'm ticked off. Right. And so sit there with that for a minute. And and then submit it and then like offer it up? Well, first of all, is it true? Are you entitled to your comfort? No. And so you're literally living in the lie that you are entitled to your comfort. I know. It's a pretty and nice, so you peaceful make a, lie. Yeah, you make a decision about whether or not you are going to continue believing that lie or if you're going to actually believe the truth. And what? So, what's the truth counter to that? That that depends. Depends on the moment. Depends on the moment. Well, first of all, we're never entitled to anything. I mean, we live in America, so we think we are, right? But we're not. You know, (laughs) the Constitution is not biblical. You know, (laughs) so it's like somebody's going to kill me for that. (laughs) But but the truth of the matter is, is that it's just not. Right. You know, it's like we we are entitled to nothing. And it would be so much better if we didn't have a Bill of Rights and we had a Bill of Responsibilities. Mm. You know, if we were responsible for one another as opposed to saying, I am entitled to this, then you get to demand it. The only thing we're really entitled to is to be toast. I mean, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's all we're really entitled to. And so so it's all grace. Well, that does, I mean, that's definitely an idea that would be pushed back against in Portland of, well, we're... No, we're not. We're not evil or, or we're not corrupt. I, don't, I, I would only have that discussion with somebody who was a professed believer. Hmm. But I don't think that's a conversation that you have with somebody who's not. Sure. Yeah. Because I, because I don't think that, you know, I don't think that you impose that truth right. on somebody who does not believe the same thing that I believe. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, moving to port? More, it strikes me that you, in the identity scope, you fit into uh, black female pastor. Three, I know that I've I've heard kind of historically, and I maybe I'm not correct in this, but that black women have faced probably the most persecution of any group. I, I don't know if I'm... Yeah, being, it's rough, man. Yeah, yeah. It's rough out there for a sister. And then you choose to be a pastor, and then you come out to the this extremely white city. 
I call it the I call it the um the south of the north. The south of it's the like north. When I was in Atlanta, you know, Georgia is the north of the south. <laughs> because How so? Can you because yeah. because in Georgia it's like it's it's really southern, but they'd like for you to think that they're just very progressive and stuff. Mm. But Atlanta is not Georgia. If you drive outside of Atlanta, I know very few African American men who drive without a gun in their glove compartment. Mm. It's legal to carry a gun with you when you drive. And if you go outside of Atlanta, most of the brothers I know have their guns with them mm. because they just know. There's some places, a lot of places, where you just don't want to be at night by yourself mm -hmm. <laughs> without some kind of protection. And then I come to the south of the north in Portland, and there's a lot, it's that kind of same strangeness. Mm. If you go outside of Portland, it's a very different place outside of Portland. Now, that said, I think I belong here. Hmm. <laughs> and I say that kind of spooky-like because I'm surprised, A, because it rains all the time here. You're not I'm just into not into that at all. <laughs> you know. But I find myself standing up for Portland a lot and getting Portland's back. So yeah. when somebody, I was talking to somebody recently and they said, you know, um, Portland is one of the most unchurched places in the country and you have all these people who are coming from outside going, you know, we got to go and, you know, church up those heathens in Portland. And, you know, and, and I don't think Portland is unchurched as much as it is other churched. I've never been anywhere where people are more open to whatever's out there than in Portland. Yeah, I, I just think Portland is other churched. Do you are you saying that that kind of opens up that opens up conversations across the board or or that I, that, I, that that honestly I wouldn't be having in Georgia hmm. or in Southern California or in Orange County where I used to live. I, I can have conversations here with people that I couldn't have anywhere. Mm. And yeah. That so Paul Young on our la on the last episode talked about that that uh in in the south you would talk about the, you wouldn't talk about Jesus. You would talk about theology. You would talk about uh what, what you know what what your concept. Obviously yeah. we are over over uh generalizing. Gen over generalizing. Yeah. Yes, not um but that here you can talk about Jesus, Absolutely. even though it seems like that would be off base or something. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad yeah. you've experienced that too. Yeah. And, and I think it, it, it excites me. It, it's, I think it challenges me as a pastor and me as a believer. It challenges me because Portlanders don't let you get away with pithy sayings and makeable arguments and political this way or that way. If you're going to say it, you're going to have to say it. If you believe it, they expect you to, to actually stand on that. Mm -hmm. And it's, honest to goodness, it's, it's refreshing. It really is. That's, that's good to hear. <laughs> I like, I, I mean, I, and thank you for defending the region. Uh, Cause it's, it's, as as much as I'm aware of how lily white the the culture is, it also hurts to some degree because I like we don't necessarily want to be that way. I mean, well, obviously, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> there's many different opinions on on that subject. Uh, um, it, it also seems to kind of undermine the fact that we do have minority populations here, and we do. I think I think the challenge that I face here sometimes, how do I say this, is I think sometimes Portlanders are so proud of how woke they are that they don't realize how woke they are not. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, that becomes the flag. Mm -hmm. It's the flag that says, I'm woke, I'm woke, I'm woke. Yes. And yes, I, I got my Black Lives Matter, you know, yard sign and, and, all kinds of stuff going on, and I, and yet at the same time, some of the conversations that I have, I find that I've, I'm I'm learning to be really gentle, mm. because 
It's not like somebody woke up and decided, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say this horrible thing mm-hmm. that, you know, and, and I just go, did you really just say that to me? You know, <laughs> and, and so I, I find myself a lot of times having to just, and this is different from the South because in the South, nobody wants to actually hear if somebody's gonna. You know, it's not about woke or not woke in the South. It's, you know, if I don't want to be bothered with you, I'm just not going to be, and you can't convince me otherwise. But here, I can have a conversation with somebody and say, that thing you just said, I'm going to preface what I'm about to respond. I'm going to preface it by saying, I don't believe you're a racist. But I'm going to ask you, if you had toilet paper hanging from your shoe when you left the restroom, would you want me to tell you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and nobody ever says no. Everybody says, yeah, I'd want you to tell me. Okay, so I'm about to tell you this. Because if you leave here and you say what you just said to me, to someone else, the chances are really good that you're going to get your hair blown back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I'd rather have you have this conversation with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, where, where you can gently communicate yeah. that. Yeah, and I'm telling you, it is, I, I have more patience for that than a lot of people, and I don't know why that is. I I honestly don't know why that is, but I have a lot of patience for people. No, yes, I do. I've put my foot in my mouth more times <laughs> than I care to remember, and I've said things, I've done things, and... And nobody's run me over with a car yet. So mm-hmm. I, I, I've got a lot of grace burning a hole in my pocket. So <laughs> I, should, I should give some people some of that grace. Yeah, that, that's about right. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, you've got that, you've got yeah. that empathy for them. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. It is the worst feeling when you say something and you're like, oh, oh that's, that, that's not what I meant. And, yeah. But... I also think that there's something to the saying, some, the saying, uh, the saying, the out, it, it's not necessarily a conscious thing all the time, but whether it's conscious or not, it need we need to be, we want to be aware of those. But because most of us think we are entitled to our comfort, mm-hmm. we don't want to have the hard conversations mm-hmm. because we think if the conversation gets hard, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so we don't want to have a hard conversation. And you want to say to somebody, no, we need, the mark of a good relationship is not that we don't have hard conversations. It's that we have hard conversations and nobody leaves. Mm -hmm. I don't know anybody who's ever been married who's had really great conversations the entire time they've been married. If they have, somebody's lying. (laughs) One or both of them are lying. You know, but at the end of the day, if you're not willing to have the hard conversations, then you're not testing your relationship at all. You know, I think yeah. that's that that's that's important when it comes to things like you know, conversations about race and gender and all kinds of stuff. What what conversations can Portlanders? How can Portlanders lean into those conversations better? We did this. We did this event. It was just three nights in February, um, called Black Poets Society. And what we found, what we discovered, was that we could have conversations about race through the lens of something creative like poetry or song. And what we did was we took this vehicle and somebody might not want to have a conversation about um, another black boy getting shot Mm -hmm. by a police officer. But we're in this room and it's majority white. Um, audience. But you can hear a song by Priscilla Renee, and the lyric is, little Jimmy had a toy, went outside to play. How was he supposed to know that he would die that day? The police officer said Jimmy had a gun, and now another mother is burying her son. And she says, if you, she says, if you don't believe that's true, I guess I wrote this song for you. If you think I write these things because I hate America, no, that's just life for me, living while black in the land of the free. You hear that lyric, you hear that song, and the room is silent. And they're listening to this song because their hearts are already open because it's music. Mm-hmm. And so they hear this song and then you hear this beautiful 
guitar Hendrix style rendition of Star Spangled Banner. And then they sit at their tables silently and just write down their impressions. They have the lyrics in front of them. They write down their impressions and then they have some discussions and then we have discussions in the room. And when I, there was so much grace in that room. There was so much courage in that room because the music actually opened everybody up and they were able to hear what somebody said that they might not have heard if they were sitting in a room with somebody or if they were sitting where there was a panel of people on a stage just talking. But there are all these opportunities that we have in poetry, in song, in art, that just it just opens us up. And when we walk into a place knowing that that's what's going to happen, that creativity is... It's the thing. I think that's one of the ways to lean into it. I mm. think good writers say things in a way that doesn't make the thing smaller, but it actually makes the thing big, <laughs> and it makes the thing flower, and it makes the thing the size of the universe, you know? Yeah, yeah. Michelle, thank you so much. Is there anything you'd like to say to Portland? Any, any message you have to get? You want to get across? Stop with the rain already. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. it's sunny today. So I'm going to I'm gonna appreciate this and be excited about this. Well, was, yeah. Was Memorial yeah. Day weekend with the rainy, that was sad for you? It wasn't sad. It's just, come on already. You know, it's just, <laughs> I just want a little more variety. Right. You know, now that's coming from a girl from Southern California where it's boringly sunny all the time. But that's different because you can find more things to do in all that sun. And it does get rainy down there, but yeah, it around does. this by spring it's like full oh, on yeah. summer. Full on summer. And here it's not full on spring until the end of June. Okay. Well, I don't know how to control the weather, but we can you pray can. about that. But yeah. but don't tell anybody, but I actually do think I like Portland a lot. Good. We're glad. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad you like it here. Good. Thank you, Michelle, for sitting with me and, and sharing. Thanks for having me. The Stark and Main podcast is hosted and produced by me, Jordan Green. It's edited by Zach McKinley and recorded in Southeast Portland. Thank you to Andrew Modlin, Pastor Michelle Jones, and thank you for listening.